I wanted to begin a new series with you this morning and studying the life of David and spending our efforts in getting to know him because he was found to be a man after God's own heart. And and that's such a, a special designation that was set upon David. And so I want to spend some time looking at the life of David. You may have noticed, hopefully, if you grabbed a bulletin, that uh, inside the bulletin was inserted uh, a uh, 50 Days of David kind of piece of paper. (laughs) In that paper, though, is my hope that you will uh, uh, take the time to study the life of David on a daily basis. And that's what we're going to be doing on the 50 Days for you, is you will notice that it's a a short reading uh, for, for each day. Uh, just a, either two or three questions uh, about that reading and then an important verse that comes from that reading uh, to reflect upon and if you can even to remember and recite for yourself. I encourage you to do that for your own personal study. It would be a great idea to do it as a family uh, after dinner uh, while you're still at the table. Get your Bible out, get that little piece of paper out, read that short scripture, uh, answer the questions with your children, with your spouse, uh, and uh, can guarantee you that reading those questions is probably about 15 minutes, 20 minutes Uh, Really not a big time demand at all. And so uh, that will also prepare you for these lessons because I won't be able to comb through every detail uh, of David's life. I imagine if I were that we would do David for probably about two years because uh, there's so many great stories and so many details about his early life and his kingship. So what I would like for you to do is spend some time doing that. And uh, as you do it, I'd like for you to let me know if you like that. Uh, it takes time for me to prepare all that. Uh, if nobody at all is doing it and doesn't care, tell me, and then I will never do it again and save my own time. But if you like that and you find that useful, uh, I'll be happy to do that for future series uh, that we do to give you something that you can go home with that will reinforce the teachings not only of what I present, uh, but as you go through this week's that's put in there, you will be looking ahead to what some of the things that we'll be talking about next week, and that'll help you have a good feel uh, for the text, and it won't be the first time you've read those things uh, when we look at them on Sundays. Uh, as we begin, it's important to uh, paint a little bit of the background uh, of what was going on at that time. Uh, and it is important, I think, to understand that, that Israel is not in good shape before David is born. That, that Israel is, is enduring uh, probably one of its early uh, ebb and flows of, of wickedness. Now, while the time of the judges was certainly a major decline, uh, it seemed to continue on and you had a little bit of a spike under Samuel. Samuel is one of the last judges uh, under, uh, that, that God gives the people. And, and Samuel, of course, is a, a very righteous, uh, very much a follower of God. Uh, but unfortunately, things have not gone well uh, in terms of where the people are under Samuel's judgment. In fact, we're told in, in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, in verse 3, that not even his sons walked in his ways, but they turned aside after gain and took bribes and perverted justice. And this is really a key verse because what you have the people of Israel doing is they go to Samuel and say, you know, you're, you're getting up there in age, you're getting older, and unfortunately your sons are not righteous and just like you are. You are able to settle our disputes, you are fair and just, and you're godly in those things, 
And, and your children are not so. And so when you die, what are we going to do? We don't have anybody to be able to judge over us. And so what we want you to do, Samuel, is we want you to appoint us a king. So that when you die, we will have someone then who will rule over us and be able to take care of these matters. If you want, you can read uh, on your own, and it's in, it, I think it's even in your reading, you can read chapter 15, and you'll be uh, reminded there of all the things Samuel says why this is a bad idea. Uh, all the things that are true today in politics, they're going to tax you to death, they're going to do this and that to you. And so, so Samuel says it's really a bad idea to do this. People say, we want to be like the nations. We want a king to rule over us. And so we see that Samuel's very upset by this. And God comes to Samuel and says, don't worry, they're not rejecting you. Not rejecting your family, they're rejecting me. They don't want me to rule over them. And so God gives them a king that they want. And what they do is they give him, what God does is give him King Saul. And Saul was a handsome man for Samuel 9. He's a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And that would be, I think, the king that you would want. This guy, he's a good-looking guy. He's a big guy. You know, he's somebody that everybody in Israel looked up to, literally. He is head and shoulders above the rest of the people. And so God gives, gives them Saul because that's going to fit what the people want. Give us somebody who, who is charismatic, who's inspirational. We don't hear things like that in politics, right? Give us somebody you know, who's going to really you know, bring us to wow and awe. And that's what Saul is all about. Saul is somebody to look at. He is intelligent like it could ever be. And he would do some debates with some people. Everybody would go, wow, he, he's really sharp looking. He looks real, real fine. Head and shoulders above everybody else. They would have to make the podium taller to make him look normal. We were having uh, our political debates about it. And that's what you have the people very excited about. But as you come into chapter 15, you realize there's some problems. Saul is not wholly interested in serving God with all of his heart. And chapter 15 becomes the crux of the problem. Saul is told to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Saul didn't really see the value in that. Keeps the king alive, keeps some of the goods, keeps some of the animals, keeps some of the first fruits of, of the nation, and takes them in as spoils for himself. Samuel comes to Saul and says, what you have done is a grievous sin, and because of that, the kingdom is being stripped away from you and is being given to another. The descendants of Saul would not reign on the throne of Israel. It is time then for a new regime to rise up. And that's where we are then in 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'd like for you to open your Bibles there. This is the chapter that we are going to spend our time with. 1 Samuel 16. And before we read that, notice the very last verse of chapter 15. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. That's, talk about a bad epitaph on your uh, tombstone. And God was sorry. And he had never put Saul in position. In chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? You can see that however much time has passed by, Samuel is still very upset about how all this has transpired. That, that Saul is no longer king because of his sins. And Samuel seems to have internalized that to a certain degree. Still grieving over that such that the Lord would say, how long are you going to be upset about this? Let's get on with our business. Let's, 
It's time to get a new king. And that's, that's what we have at the end of verse 1. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. And for I provided for myself a king among his sons. That's interesting language. Here God says, I've provided a king for myself. By implication, Saul had been chosen by God, but that was the people's king. This king was going to be God's king. This is a king that he had chosen for himself. And so we have here in verse 2, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice uh, to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Let's stop there for a minute and just realize, when when you have all the city afraid when Samuel comes walking into town, I don't think the intention is to suggest that that Samuel was one mean little booger and, you know, boy, we're all afraid when Samuel comes to town because, whoo, he's going to crack the whip on us. I, I think it's more in terms of, There's been so much wickedness that has gone on. And Saul has been now an utter failure of what has taken place. He's not the king that God had desired. He's been sinful. And the king has been ripped away from that. And when you have, during times of wickedness, either the judges or soon to come the prophets rise up and come into a city, that would often be a bad thing. Because the prophet or the judge would say, you know, woe to you guys. Uh, because of the sinfulness of what's going on around here, and pronounce some curses. You see that done many times by the prophets. And so I think that's what the question is about. Are you coming peaceably? Are we all in trouble? Have we done something wrong? Uh, we, we know Saul has sinned. We know that there's a lot of wickedness going on. What, uh, are you coming against us as well? And I think that's the answer, no. No problem peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 6. And so when they came, you have Jesse and his sons. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, we are not told anything about Eliab, but I would love to hear what Eliab looked like. But when you start giving Jesse's sons and they start walking down, here comes Eliab, the oldest one. And you looked at him and you thought, that guy's king material. No, man alive. Surely... This is the one that God is going to anoint. Now, I would have to think. He had to be some handsome guy. Big, kind of got ripped muscles, strong, tall, ready to fight everything you would think the king would be. Some charisma, some, some, some uh, very powerful uh, feelings of the people that would be invoked upon them and go, yes, this is the one. We want him to follow. We want to follow after him. And very interesting, even Samuel himself, surely this guy's the one. This is Clearly the man. And I love the next verse. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Uh, This is just a, a, a very interesting verse. And here is God said, Don't don't look at the outward appearances. This is not the one. God doesn't look at outward appearances. God simply is going to look at the heart. And I think that is a a very important lesson to to consider for ourselves. Because 
you know, we are in a society that's all about outward appearances. I mean, perhaps none greater than right now. It is all about our outward appearances. As you've probably been told, as I remember being taught in college, uh, somebody, when you're like on a job interview, makes their determination about you within the first 10 to 15 seconds just by looking at you when you walk in the door. And we do that when we meet people, encounter people, even in casual terms, not just simply job interviews. We, by their appearance, by their dress, by their speech, uh, by how well they're groomed, we often make quick decisions about who they are, what their background is, what they're all about. It's just kind of human nature in a sense. And that's what Saul, excuse me, Samuel is doing here with, with Eliab is, well, clearly he's the one. I mean, look at him. I mean, he has to be it. And what a great thought to remember that that's not the way God operates. God does not look at those external things, which makes sense. How else could Jesus eat and converse with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners except that he was looking at the heart, he was looking at the soul of the person rather than all the filth that was on the outside that the Pharisees looked at and went, you know, if you knew what manner of woman this was, you would never let her to touch her. If you knew what was going on with these people, you would never eat in their homes. And Jesus was quite different about that. He looked at the heart. He saw people beyond the external. He looked beyond simply outward appearances. Consider also how Jesus could be around the unclean. You have a woman with a flow of blood who had been unclean, who goes up and touches his garment. You have ten lepers who come up to him to be healed. Anybody else would have been running for the hills. We all, you know, unclean, unclean. And Jesus was able to look beyond those external things. And I think it's important for us to consider just a first point. And if we are going to be like God, if we are going to have the heart that God has, it is important for us to train ourselves to not look at outward appearances and pass judgment based upon those things, but to look at the heart, to try to look beyond the shell of what we have as appearances and see people for who, we, who they really are. So often we look at all the wrong things. We do it when we make our life decisions. We usually make decisions based upon the physical, about outward appearances, rather than spiritually minded, rather what God wants us to do. And we need to really consider how we look at other people. And we've talked about that many times in dealing with evangelism, is that so often we make our judgments <clears throat> excuse me, based upon the outward appearances. I've talked to you many times, you know, well... My neighbor's got, you know, a uh, 1524-pack Budweiser uh, trashes sitting out next to the trash can every Sunday night when we take out the trash. There's no way he wants to hear the gospel, right? That's a judgment based on outward appearance. I'm just simply assuming based upon those things rather than considering maybe he would be receptive. I need to consider the heart. And we might do it on all sorts of external things from from age to gender to race to whatever, being disheveled to being smelly or whatever we might come across to people that we'll, we'll encounter in various circumstances and we'll often just pass a, a quick judgment. And I find it so interesting that God doesn't do that, which really is a blessing. Because what that means is that God knows what you and I are trying to do. As much as 
we may fail in trying to serve God with all of our heart, that we fail, we make bad decisions, that God knows what we're trying to do. God knows if we have proper motivation. God knows if we're trying to serve Him with all of our heart, but we slip and stumble. God knows what we're trying to do. The converse is, you can do all the externals, but God knows if you're just putting up a front. God knows what's really inside the man. And God knows what's really inside of our hearts. And all the shell and all the front and all that we might do like that doesn't matter to God. But what a blessing that God is not fooled by the external things. God knows if we're rebellious. God knows if we are simply slipping and sinning because of human weakness. God knows if we're sitting in the pew as hypocrites. God knows if we're sitting in the pew trying to serve him and trying to follow him. He knows. He looks at the heart. And so you have such an interesting picture given here by God as Samuel is getting ready to anoint the next king that God reminds him, I don't look at those external things. That's not what's important to me. I look into the heart. Verse 8 of 1 Samuel 16 Time to call the next son. Eliab's no good, even though he appears by every standard, human standard there would be, that he should be the king. Jesse calls Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. I can kind of see Samuel going, yeah, maybe. No, not this one either. And then you have verse 9, then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? (laughs) And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he was sent and brought brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is a, really just a humorous scene, if you see it, as Jesse brings out first Eliab, and Samuel's like, sure, this is it. And, and you have God reminding Samuel, I'm not looking at the external, I'm looking at the heart, okay? Abinadab, no. Shammah, no. Don't know the rest of the sons. Son four, no. Son five, no. Son six, no. Son seven, no. Finally, you know, you see Jesse, well... Um, you sure you got the right house? And uh, Samuel, any other sons around here? You got any, you know, you just got, you know anybody else? Uh, somebody hiding in the car? You know, is there anybody else around here that, 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 that's going to be something? Because the Lord has said, it's your house. And you can just kind of see Jesse going, well, not the youngest, but he's back at home tending the sheep. You want me to get him? <laughs> Samuel says, we're not leaving until you do. <laughs> okay. Go get that youngest one. Trot old David out here. Ta-da! Here's the one. And I'm sure everybody's like, David? <laughs> Eliab looks like the king. What about Abinadab? Come on. Not the, the, the sheep herder down here that nobody thinks about. Not that young boy. He's going to be the one? Such a, 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 just a crack up of a scene as Samuel arises and anoints him. He's the one. And we're told in verse 12, a little bit of a different look. He has beautiful eyes. He's handsome. He was also ready. Need a little side point for you. 
That word ruddy is a very unusual Hebrew word. It literally means red. It only occurs one other place in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word, when it describes Esau that he was red. And that's kind of interesting because something's being told about David that he looked different. Did he have red hair? Might be. Kind of that reddish complexion. Maybe he's a little more fair than the others. I don't know. Something about him made him red. <laughs> that's what that's saying to us there. He was red, he was handsome, and had beautiful eyes. And you go, okay, so he looked different than the other boys. Maybe not what you would have expected out of a king to rise up and say, here is now the new leader of Israel. But a very fascinating scene that we're given here. And what's interesting to me is it's very similar to Jesus, where we're told Jesus had nothing about him that you would look at him and go, aha, here clearly is the Messiah. And David was the exact same way. There was nothing about David that you'd go, oh, now here's the king, obviously. You have his own father going, you want, you want boy number eight? Uh, okay, you sure you don't want the front seven? I'll go get boy eight who's messing around with the sheep. You don't want my warrior boys? All right, nothing about him that you would sit there and go, aha, clearly the king of Israel has arrived. And so very interesting similarity that Isaiah prophesies about Jesus. Now, so a couple of other interesting things happen in our story, and this lesson's going to be yours. We have now Saul being tormented in verses 14 and 15. He's, he's uh, having some difficulty with being tormented by this, this spirit. And so, verse 16, they're seeking out someone who will skillfully play so that it would send, give some peace to Saul as he is in this torment. And so verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son, uh, Jesse of Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service if he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands. So Saul was refreshed from and was well. The evil spirit departed from him. Now, we estimate that David is probably a teenager, a young teenager, 15, 13, somewhere in that range. I would like for you to imagine for a moment that Samuel has come to you and has now declared that you are the next king. Uh, you're, you're the one. Boy, talk about life changing, wasn't it? You're, you're the next king over Israel. Saul's, Saul is on the out. You now have been anointed. It has been decreed by God Himself. Now, what would you have done as a 15 year old boy about, uh, you know, oh, you're going to be king? I think I would have told, told, told Dad, no more sheep for me. <laughs> I'm king. Uh, need some help around the house? You got seven other boys, but the Lord's chosen me. Uh, I need to be groomed here. Time to put me in some uh, politics classes, put me in some, some history classes. You know, Get me set up to be king. I'm above all this stuff. You, you guys, whatever you need to do over here, you guys take care of your business. But baby, I'm king. That's just, I could just see that, that kind of attitude would potentially exude. 
What I find so interesting about David, as we learn from our second point, is that you don't see leaders change their attitude. Real leaders, when they are told that they're going to be in charge, do not grab that air of arrogance or pride, but remain the same. Did you catch verse 19? Saul sent messengers to Jesse to send me David, your son. Where's David even after he's been anointed? He's still messing around with the sheep. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? No, he's not taking you know, uh, political science 101 and getting ready for kingship and all that. He's still tending the sheep. I would have been in the house said, you know, Eliab, <laughs> you look like a king, but I'm the king. Your turn for the sheep, not me. I'm not messing with those stinky animals. It's all for you. No, he's still tending the sheep. And I think that's an important lesson to see that though he was anointed king, he didn't change it. He still was same old David doing his job, didn't see tending sheep as above himself, even though he's now going to be the new king of Israel. He was still willing to be the same guy, did not a change of attitude. And that's what we see that leaders are called to be. And Peter wrote these words, therefore... I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness in the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, yet not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Same kind of picture there is described to the elders who are shepherd the flock as uh, yes, you've now been in charge, but you don't lord it over them. He knows that they go, oh, now we're the elders. Everybody do what we say. <laughs> no, don't change. Same humble attitude, same quiet attitude, same attitude of service that's being described here. Still examples amongst the flock. And that would be true even in our homes. You know, husbands as uh, well, we're head of the house. Ooh, we're head of the house. We're in charge around here. No, that is not how it works. It's about being an example, about still having humility, still having a proper attitude. We don't change based upon having position or having right or having power. And that's what you see David doing. And one of the reasons I believe he was a man after God's own heart is, is we're going to see through this story, especially in the early life, really maintain that humble attitude of, well, who am I? Who am I that I should... Many times get a chance to kill Saul. Who am I to do that? He saw his proper place before God. He didn't change his attitude. And quite similarly with that, he still served. And though anointed king, he was still willing to serve. When Saul says, you know what? I'm being tormented here. I need somebody to, to console me, to, to play the instrument so that I can uh, have some relief from that. You don't have David go, you know what, Saul? You're a lame duck. You're out of here real soon anyway. I hope you're rot because I'm ready to be king. There's going to be some changes around here. So, no. He goes, okay, serve. And I want you to see that attitude in David that though anointed king, he's not bossing his brothers around. He doesn't tell his dad, I'm not going to do these sheep anymore. And he doesn't tell King Saul, you know, you're rejected by God. I'm the new king around here. So, you know, just deal with it. He serves. And that's what leaders do. Leadership is about service. Not about telling people what to do, 
but about exuding service, an attitude of humility that says, I'm going to work, roll up the sleeves, and, and be right there side by side with you. Such a bad thing that's happened in the religious world today that makes this, this group of there's the lay people and then there's you know these, the preacher dudes and the clergy and you know, they've got the clergy and the laity and the, you know, you've got your parish and your people. Please. We're all together. People have, I beg people, don't, don't call me preacher, minister, pastor, or any other title name, whatever, right, said reverend. I don't, no, I'm just, we're all together. That's what David's doing here with some, you, you need me to serve? Sure. We're not anybody. And David understood that. I'm, so what that God has made me king? I still need to serve. Still a humble attitude. Exactly what Jesus did. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. How many times have we noticed that when we say the Gospels? Who's the one washing the disciples' feet? Jesus is the one serving. Here's the one who's the creator of the world. Here's the one who could easily command all people to get down and wash his feet, to clear the roads and serve him. And yet, Jesus is the one who serves. He is the one washing the feet. He is the one that is caring for those who are the downtrodden, the outcasts, and the poor and the needy. He is the one who is willing to go to the cross. And that's the picture of what we're given here. You know, the apostles did the exact same thing. 2 Corinthians 6.4, 1 Corinthians 3.5, we see the apostles repeatedly only saw themselves as servants. And that's the attitude we need to have for ourselves as well. So I want you to think about as we kick off this, this series of looking at the life of David, is there's three important keys that we learn about David very early on, before he's even sitting on the throne, before he's actually been made the king, where he has these decisions that he's able to make. We learn from God what he wants out of his leaders, what he's looking for out of people. He wants people like him. One way we're like God is by not looking at the externals. Don't look at outward appearances. Don't look at the physical. When you see people, you need to see God's creation. You and I need to see a soul and not the prejudices or any other external judgment that we often make when we come across people. Get to know the heart of the person. Get to know people regardless of the external. Second, servants of God don't become arrogant when leading. And this applies to everybody. This, with elders, deacons, preachers, Bible teachers, all of us. Whatever position that we're given to be able to serve does not give us room to say, oh, well, now I'm the one in charge, and so everybody's going to get to listen to me, what I have to say. And such a great attitude that we see in David. Still the same David who does not see tending sheep as something beneath him. Still is willing to do that task. And then, while it seems obvious, servants still serve. <laughs> servants must be serving. Servants are not about raising themselves up and saying, Oh, well, I can't do that. I'm not going to serve anymore. I'm a leader. Servants still serve. As you think about this, this lesson, I hope you'll think about this week, and I hope you will take those uh, bulletin inserts and, and use those as well. Think about how you can apply those lessons and think about tomorrow as you're meeting people and today as you go around people, how can I serve? How can I help somebody? What can I do to show that I'm concerned about the heart of the person rather than the externals? 
How can I serve even still as leading? How can I make sure that I never change my attitude of realizing that where I stand before God is nothing more than his humble servant? We always have to keep that attitude in mind. Lord willing, next week we will get to look at one of the most famous incidents of of, uh, David's life. We will get to look at the great story of David and Goliath. And we will consider some of the lessons that come from old David going up against the great giant. And so we'll look at that next week.